the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that, all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them and ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages to buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and fifties. And taking the loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. Immediately, he and his disciples get into, the, get into the boat. He made his disciples get into the boat, sorry, and go before them to the other side, to Bethesda, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them. And the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, and their hearts were hardened. This is the word of the Lord. You guys have a seat. Good morning, church. Almost good afternoon. <laughs> Football season's over. No one's rushing off to get anywhere. I'm just kidding. Uh, so my name is Austin Glenn. I'm one of the ministers here. Um, Flourishing Grace, I'm super excited about our text this morning. Um, and the main reason is because this text that we're looking at, it, it begins to answer uh, the most important question that a person can ever ask. Um, there, there are a lot of important questions. You know, ten, ten years ago, um, I asked Monica to marry me. That was a pretty important question. You know, I'm glad she said yes. I married up. Um, but, you know, we'll ask ourselves important questions all the time. Where do I live? You know, where are my kids going to go to school? What, what should I do with my career? And all of these questions are important, 
Um, but if we're not, if we're asking those questions without asking the question that our text poses today, man, we are caught up in this matrix of being distracted by day-to-day life and we're missing what it's really all about. Because the answer to this question, this one single question that every single person is going to have to ask themselves, every person who's ever lived will be confronted with this question, it, it will literally change the entire trajectory of your life. Right? It will alter the course of your life, and this question determines your eternal trajectory. And, and this question, the most important question that there is, is this. It is, who is Jesus? Right? Who is he? You see, Jesus is unique in this regard because there is no other historical figure that has been so polarizing. If I ask you, you know, who's Napoleon Bonaparte? We all say, oh, you know, like a military guy, political guy, French revolutionary, you know, kind of took over Europe. And, and no one's going to argue with you, right? They're going to be like, yeah, that's, that was Napoleon. If I say, who's George Washington? It's, oh, you know, a general for the American colonies, first president of the United States. And, and no one's going to disagree. But if I ask that question, who is Jesus? Everyone has all sorts of different answers, right? And, and this question is so crucial because there are many of us who are believing in a Jesus that's not the real Jesus, Right, a Jesus who's maybe been passed on from culture, from, from our education, maybe from our families, or, or we'll take our idols, the things that we cherish most, right? And we'll pretend Jesus cares about them. We'll put, a, we'll put a Jesus sticker on those things so that our functional saviors, we can pretend that they're actually Jesus. We can pretend that we're following Jesus. And so maybe we believe in like platitude Jesus, right? Platitude Jesus, he's, a, he's the king of the Hallmark special. He has a good uh, corner on greeting cards. This is the Jesus who inspires people to, to you know, believe in themselves, to achieve whatever they can do, whatever they set their mind to. There's enlightened Jesus, enlightened Jesus, full of ancient wisdom, not really relevant today. There's, there's granola Jesus, right? This, this Jesus loves fair trade coffee. He drives a hybrid. You know, he kind of sees uh, littering and not recycling and not composting. Those are mortal sins to, to granola Jesus. There's Republican Jesus. He's against tax increases, activist judges. He's for guns and traditional family values, right? There's, there's Democrat Jesus who hates Wall Street and Walmart. He's not a fan of warm weather. He wants universal everything, right? There's bobblehead Jesus. He, he, he doesn't say much. He kind of goes along for the ride. He just kind of hangs there. There's touchdown Jesus. This is who Bengals fans are praying for. Sorry, guys, he's not real. You know, he helps athletes run faster. Jump higher than non-Christians. He determines the outcome of Super Bowls. There's religious Jesus. This is a Jesus that, for me, is, is the most heartbreaking Jesus because this Jesus says that you have to be good enough to be accepted by him and that if you have done enough, he will dole out these infinitesimal amounts of grace to you. There's spiritual Jesus Spiritual Jesus hates religion. He hates churches. He hates pastors, priests, bishops, and doctrine. This Jesus helps you, you know, tap into your own spirituality. You don't have to be a part of the system. Right, I can go on and on. We have, you have buddy Jesus and boyfriend Jesus who gives us hugs, and we have Jesus the zealot, and we have Jesus the myth. But the problem is that none of these Jesuses, none of these versions of Jesus, are the real Jesus. Jesus has become a mascot that, that we've taken and we've conformed him into our image. And, and then we, we never get to know the real Jesus. And the problem is, is that if we're trusting a counterfeit Jesus, there's a good chance that we might have a counterfeit salvation. And that's scary 
right? That's a place that nobody wants to be. And so this question today, who is Jesus, is exactly where we find ourselves in the text. So as a church, we've been going through the Gospel of Mark. We started last year. We took a break for Advent. We're picking it back up. And uh, in Mark chapter 4, Pastor Josh preached this a few, few days ago, did an excellent job. He talks about how Jesus uh, calmed the winds and the waves, right? And at the end of that miracle, we see Jesus' disciples. They say, who is this then that even the winds and the sea obey him? A chapter later, Jesus goes to his hometown, and everyone's questioning his identity, right? They're all saying, you know, is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the, the, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon, right? All these people are asking this question, who is Jesus? And then a few verses later, we have Herod together. He's with all of his buddies, right? And they're like, man, who is Jesus? I don't know. I heard he was John the Baptist, you know, reincarnated or, you know, a, a prophet of old or Elijah, right? Everybody is wondering who Jesus is. All these texts are working together to form this thrust, to ask this question, who is Jesus? And then we get to chapter 6, where we are today, and Mark starts to answer that question for us, right? And so as we're reading this text and we're thinking through it, two things that we want to keep front of mind. We want to say, who is the real Jesus? And then we want to evaluate ourselves and say, man, am I following the real Jesus um, and so in Mark chapter 6, verse 30, uh, Mark starts talking about the real Jesus. And what we see right off the bat is that Jesus is an ironic revolutionary. He's an ironic revolutionary. In chapter 6, verse 30, Jesus and his disciples, they're out praying in this desolate place. They just came off of this like crazy ministry high. They're trying to recoup. They come out from their kind of private place. I mean, they are bombarded with like 10,000 people, right? The text says 5,000 men, not even counting like kind of women and children. This is the Maverick Center, completely packed out, right? All of these people there to see Jesus. And I love what happens next because we get this, we get this glimpse into Jesus's heart, Right? He, says, he says that the text says that he has compassion on them because they are like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus is tired. There are people all around him, but he doesn't get grumpy. He doesn't hide. He engages with them. He has compassion on them. And then this next phrase is really important, this phrase, sheep without a shepherd, because this phrase actually gets used all throughout the Bible. And it's our instinct, right, to hear this phrase, sheep without a shepherd, and we start thinking about like kind of German, like blonde-haired, blue-eyed Jesus cutting, coloring like a, a white little lamb. And we're like, oh, like Jesus is so cute, you know. But that's, that's not what this text is talking about, right? That's precious moments, Jesus. That's not the real Jesus, right? And so uh, I don't know if y'all remember, uh, uh, in the summer of last year, we, we did a sermon series through Hebrews. And we talked about how there are certain words or phrases that are like hyperlinks back to other parts of the Bible, Right? They trigger thoughts in the minds of the people who would have been reading them in the original audience. And this phrase, a sheep without a shepherd, is one of those hyperlinks. There are actually a few of them in our text today. But this hyperlink is one that a Jewish person in first century Rome would have heard and been like, oh, oh my. So, so, so that's the kind of leader that Jesus is. Right? Because the first time that we see this phrase mentioned is at a very pivotal time in the life of God's people the first five books of the Old Testament are Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They kind of tell the story of God's people and how God created a people, how they were in slavery and captivity, and how he led them out of that into the promised land. And in Numbers 27, God has used Moses to lead his people out of Egypt. He's led them out of slavery, out of captivity. He's led them through the wilderness, and they're just on the brink 
of entering the promised land. But Moses can't go on. He's not able to. He had sinned against God, and he lost his ability to enter this promised land. And so his time with people, the people of God are over. And Moses is standing on this mountain. He's looking over all of God's people. And in Numbers 27, 15, uh, you can look this up if you want, but he basically prays. He says, God, I can't go on any further. Right? But please don't abandon your people. Raise up a leader who can take them out of this arid desert and into this new kingdom, this promised land. Because God, these people are like sheep without a shepherd. And from that point on, any time in scripture that we've seen this phrase, sheep without a shepherd, it's either in reference to this dynamic revolutionary leader or in the absence of a dynamic revolutionary leader. And so how does God respond to Moses? He raises up a man named Joshua to lead his people into the promised land, which is incredible because Joshua, the Hebrew word for Joshua is Yeshua. You translate that to Greek and it's Iesus, and you translate that to English and it's Jesus right? It is so tight. And so God raises up this man named Joshua to lead them out of this arid, desert, lifeless place and into a life of victory and peace and stability and joy. This promised land full of milk and honey. And now, 1,500 years later, after the time of Joshua, there is a new Joshua, a better Joshua. We see Jesus standing up on this mountain, looking over all of his people. And he says, man, these people are like sheep without a shepherd. They need someone to lead them out of bondage, out of captivity, out of the slavery, the sin, and into a life of peace and joy and freedom. But in this moment, Jesus doesn't raise up another leader, right? He doesn't, he doesn't raise up a prophet. In this moment, he steps in. He says, I am the revolutionary leader that you are looking for that will take you into this new life, out of bondage, out of slavery, and I will lead you into an abundant life, a life of meaning, a life of purpose, a life where you'll find joy in your suffering, a place where you will have hope for a future with no suffering, right? Jesus is the revolutionary leader who can bring us to that place, but he isn't a leader like other people would expect him to be. He's not a leader like the leaders of this world. He's ironic. He's different. Uh, Mark wants to make this clear to us, right? Uh, The story right before this feeding of the 5,000 miracle, we get a picture of King Herod. And in this account, we get an example of what the world's leaders are like. There's this lavish party. Everything is kind of centered around him. He's self-glorifying, self-exalting, right? There's good food, good wine. And then all of a sudden, uh, Herod's mistress kind of enters the scene, or his mistress' daughter, which I think is kind of weird. I don't understand what's going on there, but his mistress' daughter kind of comes in and does this dance. And Herod is so pleased by this dance that he says, hey, whatever you want, up to half of my kingdom, I will give it to you. And this, this was a flex. This is Herod saying, man, I am so powerful, I'm so great, that I can chop my kingdom in half and just give it to you like it's nothing, right? doesn't even phase me. So what happens This woman has to have uh, John the baptizer's head on a platter. And so Herod uses this coercive power as he kills John the baptizer. And in this moment, we see the power of the world, right? This self-centered, glory-hunger, coercive power that ultimately leads to death and destruction. And in the very next scene, we see Jesus. 
Here becomes the foil to which we are to contrast Jesus against. And Jesus is the revolutionary leader who leads differently than the patterns of this world. And this sort of power, this sort of revolution, is the only thing that can combat a fallen, sinful world, the coercive power that we see. It's only this sort of power that can, that can satisfy the human soul and can bring life to the lifeless. I love what N.T. Wright says in his book on atonement. He's a, he's a brilliant scholar, super sharp guy, written a ton of books, but um, he says, you know, in Jesus, a new sort of power was let loose upon the world, and it was a power of self-giving love. This is the heart of the revolution that was launched on Good Friday. You cannot defeat the usual sort of power by the usual sort of means. If one force overcomes another, it's still a force that wins. Rather, at the heart of the victory of God over all the powers of this world, there lies a self-giving love. Right? And a self-giving love is what gives life to those who encounter it. And this is the real Jesus. Right? This is the real Jesus who is leading a revolution of self-giving love. This is not politics Jesus. Politics, Jesus teaches that kingdom life is found in defeating the other party and coercively imposing my political preferences on you via the legislative process. That's politics, Jesus. That's not the real Jesus. And the real Jesus teaches that life comes from practicing self-denial, from loving others sacrificially, for putting our preferences aside for the sake of the gospel. And in that, there is life. Right? And I love what Jesus does next because in this story of the feeding, he sees the people's hunger and he meets their need. And the symbolism here is so rich too because bread is in the Bible often used as this metaphor for life. When the, when the wilderness people, you know, the Hebrews leaving Egypt, were out in the desert, they were hungry, on the brink of death, and God miraculously causes miracle bread called manna to appear on the ground before them. In John, Jesus comes back and says, man, I am the bread of life. And so Jesus is taking this bread, this element that is synonymous with life, and he's breaking it and he's multiplying it. And there's so much life, so much bread that everyone is filled to the brim and there are 12 baskets left over. Right? Jesus is not a self-serving tyrant who leads with coercive power, but he is a self-giving king who gives life. He sees people who are hungry and he doesn't send them away. He satisfies their hunger. And the truth is that we are all hungry for something. Every single person is hungry for something. Right? We, we say that we're hungry for a good family. Right? If I have this good family, if everything in my family is together, then I will be satisfied. And so what do we do? We construct Dr. Phil Jesus. Right? And we use Dr. Phil Jesus to give us the thing that we ultimately want. Or we say, man, my career. When I hit that point in my career where I am at the top, then I'll be satisfied. Right? And so what do we do? We construct consultant Jesus, and we try to use his principles to climb the corporate ladder and get ahead. You show me what you're pursuing, and I'll show you your Jesus. The real Jesus is different. He's different than the ways of this world. He says, you want a good family? That's great. Like, I made families. Like, I'm pro good families. But if you want a good family, chase after me. He says, hey, you want a strong career? That's incredible guess what? I actually created vocation. It's a means through which I distribute my common grace in this world. And so if you want a good career, I love it. Don't chase career. Chase me. 
When we're chasing after career as the ultimate goal, everything else will get sacrificed at its altar. Our time with Jesus in the morning is shot because we want to get into work early. Right? Our time with our families in the afternoon or in the evenings is shot because we, we want to take uh, work home right? so we can get ahead. And the same is true with anything. Whatever it is that we are pursuing, we will sacrifice everything at its altar, and none of those things will give us life in return. The same is true for Jesus. If you're following Jesus, we sacrifice our life at the altar of Jesus, but only Jesus can give us life. He says, hey, you want a strong career? Follow me. Jesus is different. He's, he's an ironic leader. He goes against the grain. He says, man, you guys are stressing out about what you will eat and what you will drink and what you will wear. Just don't sweat it. He says, seek me and my kingdom and all of these things will be added to you as well. Right? We give up our lives to follow Jesus and he gives us the life that we never even knew we wanted. And in him, we find satisfaction. And that's something that only Jesus can do. Only Jesus can satisfy the deepest longings of our heart and lead us out of death and into life. And that is because Jesus is God. Jesus is God. And that is the second truth that we see in our text today is that Jesus is God Almighty in the flesh. Jesus is more than a revolutionary leader. He is more than a guy who goes against the grain. He's actually God Almighty, the cosmic creator in the flesh. When I was in a seminary, I took this class from this guy named Dr. Bach. Uh, he's like a super brilliant guy. His uh, study, his field of study is called historical Jesus. And so he's written a ton of books about this. Um, and basically what he does is he uses the same like historical critical method that we would use to verify, you know, information about the life of Plato or Augustus Caesar or Napoleon Bonaparte, the same method. And he applies it to the life of Jesus. He says, who was Jesus really? Right? The same question that we're asking today. And just spoiler alert, like, his conclusion is that the Jesus of the Bible is probably the most historically accurate representation of who he is. So if you're wondering, that's, that's the answer. Um, but he has a great book called Breaking the Da Vinci Code. I recommend it to anyone interested in the topic. But uh, I was taking this class with him, and it was, a, it was a PhD level course, so it was a little bit different than a normal class. And, you know, they'd opened it up to my degree program. And we literally just sat around in his living room and just talked about the Bible. We talked about Jesus. You know, we read books, and we discussed them, and we wrote papers, and uh, he was talking about the differences between the synoptic gospels, which is Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and then John, right? And he says the differences in the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, or uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke from John is not the content, but the perspective. He says in Matthew, Mark, Luke, we have this ground-up approach. It's a story about a man. And then right off the bat, we're going, Man, this guy's pretty special. Like, I've never seen doves descend on a normal man. Like, who is this guy, right? But as the story goes on, we get to the end, and we're like, mind's blown. This man is really God, right? And then John takes this different approach. John starts off, you know, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and he was with God in the beginning, and through him all things were made. And right off the bat, John is letting the cat out of the bag that God came down. And so in Mark, we have the story of not a man who's becoming God, that is a third century heresy called adoptionism, but a man who is actually God, right? The, the Bible teaches that there is one God who has eternally existed in three distinct persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. This is what Jesus taught. This is what the apostles taught. This is what every Christian who has ever lived in any place in any time has always believed. And in Mark, we see the story of God the Son 
who condescended to human form and never once became less God. He was fully God and fully man all the time. And Mark, uh, especially in our text today, we, we, we see this man and, and he wants us to know that he is God. He, he does this by telling us what Jesus is doing, right? He starts by multiplying the loaves and the fish. And everyone who's reading that is obviously struck like, with like, this reality, I could never do that. You know, like, I can't even conceptualize what this looks like. Did somebody like, break a piece of bread and it kind of grows back like a sponge and they kind of pass it? You know, it's like, I don't know. I can't even imagine that. That is clearly something that only God can do, right? We, we see Jesus walking on water. And, and, you know, I don't know about you. I kind of was raised in this uh, name it, claim it faith tradition uh, where that's not actually what faith is. But the idea was that if you believe in something strong enough, it will happen. And so I remember being a little kid and I'm like, I can't walk on water. I can't walk on water. I can't. I went out in the backyard into the pool and went right in the water, right? I quickly learned that walking on water is something that God does, not me. You know, and what I love about this miracle is it's a throwback to Genesis 7 in Noah's Ark, right? We all know the story of Noah. There are these wicked people and God's sending kind of this flood. And in his grace and mercy, he saves Noah by having Noah build an ark. The rain falls, the flood rises, and then Genesis uh, 7.18, it says, The waters prevailed and increased greatly on earth, and the ark floated on the face of the water. Now, the word floated was a translator's choice. The actual word comes from the Hebrew term halak, which means to walk. And so the God of Genesis 7, who has complete power over the waters and the flood, who has caused this boat to walk on the face of the water, is now walking next to a boat on the face of the water, taking control of the wind and the waters. Jesus moves on to Gennesaret. He heals the sick. And we remember the promise of Isaiah that when God's Messiah come, the eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped, and then shall the lame leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. And as for us, as the reader, we're sitting here watching all these things saying, my goodness, like, that's pretty incredible. I, I, I don't know who could do these things, right? These are things that only God can do. And so, so we start to ask this question, who is Jesus? And all of these things are pointing to the answer that Jesus is God Almighty, God the Son in the flesh. And what's beautiful about this doctrine, this Christian doctrine, is that we see a God who is both personal and powerful, right? Jesus is not Greek mythology God, like Jesus. He's not Greek mythology Jesus sitting up on Mount Olympus, watching the affairs of man, laughing at them, you know, making wagers against them, oblivious to their struggles. Jesus is God who came down and he experienced all of our struggles. He was abandoned by his friends. He was the victim of abuse. He suffered infirmities. He experienced the loss of loved ones. He is the God who can personally meet us in our pain, who can empathize with us, who can relate to us, who can comfort us, because he came down and endured suffering as one of us. Jesus is the God who says, man, I see you. He says, I see you in the struggle of infertility. I didn't have kids. He says, I see you recovering from abuse. I was abused too. I see you in your betrayal. I was betrayed. I see you when your family and your loved ones turn away from you and you're alone and abandoned. I was abandoned too. I'm here with you. But Jesus doesn't stop there. 
right? Because the real Jesus isn't counselor Jesus who empathizes only with your pain. The real Jesus is God Almighty in the flesh who can do something about your pain. The Bible tells us that Jesus is God, the radiance of the glory of God who upholds the universe by the word of his power. For by him and through him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, invisible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the God who has gone into heaven and is sitting at the right hand of the Father, and all powers have been subjected to him. He is the God who will one day return in glory and make his dwelling place with man and wipe away every tear from every eye, and death will be no more. Jesus is not counselor Jesus. Jesus is God Almighty, right? Jesus is God who can supernaturally infuse hope into hopeless situations. Jesus is God who can give you endurance in the midst of suffering and who can bring joy to the most desperate life circumstances that you've ever experienced, and yet Jesus is God who can miraculously alter the created order and do supernatural miracles like multiplying loaves and walking on water and healing the sick. This is the real Jesus. Right, this is the Jesus that I experienced when I was 19. Um, I know a lot of you probably noticed I'm missing a digit on old righty over here. Uh, but when I was 19, you know, my family and I, it was me, uh, my dad, uh, my two brothers, and then my best friend. We were all out in the mountains four-wheeling. We started with two trucks. One truck got stuck in the river. That's a preview of how this story ends up. But, uh, you know, we were getting after it pretty hard. We all piled up into this one truck, and we're driving on this mountain road, right? We're, we're getting after it. And my dad was driving. He took a turn too hard. And I started to feel the truck tip. And I reach up and I grab my seatbelt. That's like kind of the last thing I remember before waking up. And I think that's how I lost my finger too. But the next thing I knew, I was like waking up on the ground. Right? I looked over and the truck is over here sideways. I look up and I'm like, that's where we were, you know. And we had rolled all the way down the mountain. I looked down at my feet. My shoes had been blown off. I was thinking, don't be paralyzed. <laughs> like wiggle your toes. Okay, good. And then I took my hands up and I'm like, whoa. And I was like, like my bone and my hand was all splayed open. And, and, and we were out in the middle of nowhere. No cell reception. Well, my, my friend Justin, he had his cell reception. He had one bar. He calls my mom. He goes, Sarah, we're out in the middle of nowhere. The truck rolled. Right? My mom is on the other side of the phone, probably in the most helpless situation that she's ever been in in her entire life. In one phone call, she's facing the reality that, man, I might lose my entire family this afternoon. What does my mom do? She's a saint of a woman, right? She, she calls the police, thank you, Lord, and uh, she calls the church. And the church comes around her, meets her in her house, and she'll tell you that in this moment of complete hopelessness and desperation, she had this sense of hope that just was in her, completely unexplicable, right? Jesus had miraculously given her hope in a dire circumstance. And then we're all out in the middle of nowhere, and my brother, he wasn't, he wasn't banged up too badly. He had some bumps and bruises and cuts and stuff, and so he takes off his shirt because it's bleeding on it and stuff, and he goes, man, like, we are never going to get out here unless I get up that mountain, and so he starts hiking up the mountain, right? And he gets to the top of the mountain, and he's running, and he's running, trying to find somebody. And then his pants start falling down, actually. And so he, he's in shock. He's not, like, really thinking clearly. And so he takes his pants off, puts them on the ground, and the desperation hits him, right? He's like, 
kneels down on his pants and he goes, Jesus, if you're real, we need you now. We're not going to make it. So he starts running again, he's running, he's running, you know, and he sees this car, and they actually slam on their brakes and turn the other way, because there's a half-naked, bloody man, like, running at them, and they have no idea what's going on, you know, but then they realize, like, oh, wait a minute, these guys might be in trouble, and so they turn back around, it happens to be this whole crew of folks who are out bird-watching in the middle of nowhere, and in this crew of folks are two doctors who have a satellite phone. So they hike down the mountain. They start doing basic first aid. They call the police. They let them know where we are. And then eight hours after the time that we had rolled down this mountain, I'm being airlifted over to the hospital. Right? I get there, and, the, and they're like, man, I don't, I don't know if you realize this, but this is a miracle. Like 97% of the time, the guy in the driver's seat where, or in the passenger seat where you were dies. 97% of the time. Right? We saw the Lord respond to prayer in a supernatural way, supernaturally infusing hope into a hopeless situation. But we also saw a God who, who powerfully alters the created order to defy 97% of the time and keep a person alive. This is the God that we serve, the real God, the real Jesus. But what's even more beautiful about Jesus is that he is not just a God who is with us in our pain. He's not just a God who's powerful to overcome it. But he is a God who does something about it. This is the last kind of truth about Jesus that we see in our text today is that Jesus is the king who is broken for the broken. Jesus is the king who is broken for the broken. And I love how Mark sets this up. This is a brilliant literary move on his part because he is intentional, super intentional about the words he uses, right? He wants to create this mental link to this other monumental time in Jesus' life. Right? And so you see Jesus on the mountain. There are men reclining. It's late in the evening. And then Mark 6.41, it says this, And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and he said, A blessing. And broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before his people. Jesus took the loaves, blessed them, broke them, and he gave them to the disciples. I don't know if that rings a bell for anyone here, maybe some people who've been around the church for a while, but if you go to Mark 14, we see Jesus on the night of his betrayal. He's celebrating the Passover meal. It's late in the day, and there are men reclining around the table. And in Mark 14, 22, he says, as they were eating, he took the bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to them, and he said, take, this is my body. Mark is creating this mental link, right? We have these similar descriptions in the setting, and then we have the exact same words in the exact same order. And in this moment, our minds are transported back to Mark 6, Jesus, the revolutionary leader who's ushering in this new kingdom life, that Jesus who is fully God and fully man, who is present with us in our pain, who is powerful and personal, but he's not, he doesn't stop there. He does something about it. And in this text, we see how Jesus ushered in this new reality. God incarnate achieved victory over sin and death, and the means by which he did it was his broken body. See, the problem with the world is not a lack of education, as progressive Jesus would suggest. It's not the wrong political party, as politics Jesus would tweet. It's not the global warming, as, as green Jesus would shout. Those are all symptoms of the problem. The problem is sin. 
right? It's our rebellion against God and his good created order and his good will. And when Adam and Eve rebelled against God, sin entered this world and everything got turned upside down. And we all follow along that same pattern, right? We contribute to the brokenness of this world through our sin. And the Bible is very clear. The punishment for cosmic treason against a cosmic creator is a cosmic judgment. And there's nothing that we can do, nothing that you or I can do to undo our sin. There's no good that will cancel out the bad. We all sit in this place of awaiting judgment, which is the fair consequence for our cosmic rebellion. But we have a God who is gracious and merciful, right? He took that judgment on our behalf. This is why God became a human, because humans sinned, and humans deserve judgment. And so God became a human and took that punishment. As a man, Jesus lived the life that we should have lived. He was a perfect man, which made him an acceptable substitute for us. If he had sinned, he would have died for his own sin. But he was perfect, so he could die for ours. And yet, being fully God, his sacrifice on the cross was so powerful that it could take away the sins of all who trust in him. Right? If Jesus were just a man and not God, his substitution would have been good for one. One perfect for one sinful. But since Jesus is God, his substitution is powerful enough to cover the sins of anyone who would trust in him alone for forgiveness. And not only does he forgive, but he gives new life. We enter his kingdom and we have this hopeful anticipation of the day when he will undo all the sin of this world. But this sacrifice that Jesus made is only available to the broken. Right? If you think that you can earn it by doing good or being strong enough, you will never do good enough or be strong enough, right, to achieve perfection. Everyone in this room has already messed that up. There's not a single one of us in here who is perfect. But this is what religious Jesus says. He says, you have to do more, try harder, be better. And he puts all this pressure on you that you can never live up to. But the real Jesus, the Jesus who is, he says, come to me, all who are weak and heavy laden, confess your sin, acknowledge your brokenness, trust in my sacrifice alone for the forgiveness of your sins, and I will give you rest. Do not put yourself on the same level of Jesus thinking that your works can accomplish the same thing that his works did. He is God. We are not. And that is the Jesus who is. And so we have to evaluate, is this the Jesus that I believe in? Is this the Jesus that I'm following? Because if I'm following a counterfeit Jesus, my salvation might be a counterfeit salvation. And so I put together three quick diagnostics that you can ask yourself, right? Does your Jesus ever disagree with you? Does your Jesus ever disagree with you? See, Jesus was a revolutionary leader. He did things differently than anyone who has ever lived. There has never been a single person on the face of this earth who Jesus has been in complete agreement with because we are all sinful and he is not. And so if your Jesus never disagrees with you or your lifestyle or what you're doing, then it might not be the real Jesus Fortunately, the real Jesus gives us grace to overcome that sinful behavior, right? Does your Jesus, is your Jesus personally involved in your life? 
Now, I'm not saying every moment of your life is going to be this mountaintop experience where the manifest presence of God is so real that you can, you know, just touch it. But, but can you look back to moments where you've encountered Jesus personally? Because the real Jesus is personal. He's not esoteric. He's not distance. He's involved intimately in our lives. Last question is, is your Jesus enough? Is the work that your Jesus did on the cross, was that enough for your salvation? Or do you have to add to it? Because if you have to add to the work of your Jesus, then he is not the real Jesus. The real Jesus is God. And so if you're asking yourself, well, man, I don't know if my Jesus is the real Jesus. Three quick things that you can do. One, that we all have these connection cards. There's a box you can check that says relationship with Jesus. Man, fill that out. Check that box. And myself or Pastor Josh or Benjer, one of the, the staff members here, we will reach out to you and we'll start that conversation. Right? We want people to know the real Jesus. Also, you can read this. This is a book about the real Jesus. Every single verse points to, foreshadow, alludes to, or is explicitly about Jesus. You can read this book in community with people. So when you start getting crazy ideas, they can tell you that's not what that says over there, right? So read your Bible in community, and you can come to know the real Jesus. Lastly, be here. Week after week, you know, Pastor Josh or myself or Benjer or, you know, uh, Josh Garner, we, we study the scripture and do the best that we can to present the real Jesus to everyone in this room. So three quick things that you can do, or three simple things, I should say, that you can do to get to know the real Jesus. A.W. Tozer says, the most important thing about us is what we think about when we think about God. And I would take that a step further and say, the most important thing about us is what we think about when we think about Jesus. Because what we think about Jesus determines how we relate to Jesus. And if we want to know the life and the abundance and have the salvation of the real Jesus, when we think about Jesus, it needs to be the real one. So I'm going to pray towards that end. The band is going to come up and lead us in our last set of worship. And then we are sent out as ambassadors of the real Jesus into our world. Father, we're thankful for this time together. We're thankful for your word. We're thankful for Jesus. We're thankful for your son who condescended to human form, who took on human flesh, who lived the life that we could never live and died the death that we deserve so that we can be reunited to you. We're thankful that you are the God of reconciliation who is reconciling all things unto yourself and that we get to be a part of that. And so we pray that in this moment you would do that. For those here who have never encountered the real Jesus, we pray even that it's this week, God, even if it's right now, that you would reveal yourself to them in a way that's personal and powerful. And for the people here who have trusted Jesus, who have received forgiveness of your sins, I ask that you would stir their affections for you in new ways and that they would experience you even this week, Father. We love you and we praise you. We cherish your salvation that you give to us through your son. And it's in his name, amen.